passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be in Hebrews uh, this morning uh, in our series on Advent. This is the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is a word that we probably most of the time just hear with the church, but it is a word that just means coming. It means arrival. So it is a, a time that the, the church sets aside each and every year for us to consider and, and remember the, the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, while hopefully also stirring our hearts and affections toward the second coming of Jesus at a time known only to the Father. Advent is not a, a recent tradition. It is something that's been observed by Christians for a millennia. And, and this command to remember the things that God has done on behalf of his people is something that's, that this command, remember, is found throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with these commands uh, for God's people to, to take time and set aside time for us to remember how God has worked on our behalf. And yet, while this is not a, a new tradition, I, I do think that this season of Advent carries a, a renewed sense of importance for us today in our current context. You see, as, as Pastor Andy alluded to just a few moments ago, this season of Christmas is just filled with an unbelievable amount of noise, isn't it? It is just filled with, with so much noise. It is so easy for us to get distracted from, from the message of, of, the, of the first Christmas by the, the, the giving of gifts, by the baking of cookies, by the decorating of trees, by the enjoyment of Christmas break, by the traveling to see friends and family, by, by listening to Christmas music, by dreaming of white Christmases, and on and on and on. It is so easy for us to get distracted and miss the simplicity and the majesty of Christmas. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist. If you know me, I'm not typically an alarmist, but I don't think this is something that's going to get any easier for us. There's this excellent article that was written in a uh, Dallas newspaper uh, about a month ago, the Dallas Morning News, where uh, an area pastor argued that our society— is no longer bound together by religion such as Christianity, but instead we are now bound together as a society by what he calls vacuous consumption addictions. He puts it this way, if religion is that which holds our attention and that which binds us together, then it's not Christianity. Christianity is no longer religion in any genuine sense because what holds our attention today, what binds us together as a society, is no longer theology. It's no longer precepts and commands, but instead, all of these decadent diversions, customs, conventions of our rich but interiorly vacuous society. This is our religion today. Binge-watching Netflix, consumption addictions to various social media, pornography, and the litanies of endless news, both fake and otherwise. This is truly religion. This is what binds us together. Not holy days, rituals, or quaint moralities. More than any persecutions, these have displaced the old religions such as Christianity. In other words, what he is saying there is that we live in a culture that is increasingly distracted by the distractions it has created in order to distract ourselves from the things that really matter. 
And if the church is shrinking, it's not so much that it's shrinking because of persecution. It's, it's actually shrinking more because of distraction. And this bears itself out at Christmas, doesn't it? When it comes to Christmas, the primary religion of today is not the original Christmas story of, of God made flesh, but instead a, a season that is marked by countless other things. And so this morning, as we continue going through the book of Hebrews, we're going to turn our eyes to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we know the story of Christmas. We, we've probably heard it many times, and yet it is a, a story that is important for us to remember. Because by remembering it, it, it helps us combat the distractions of our culture. As I mentioned, Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up. Hebrews is a book that is written to uh, focus on the greatness and supremacy of Jesus, specifically for the original audience, specifically the greatness of Jesus over the old covenant, the old way of doing things. But I think that in our culture of distraction, it is just as relevant for us, this message of Jesus' greatness, this message of Jesus' supremacy, just as relevant. So this morning, at the beginning of our time together, I just want to uh, land on what the, the big idea, the main focus of this chapter is, and for our time together this morning. The most important thing that you can do this Christmas is pay greater and closer attention to the message of Christmas. There are many good things that you can do this Christmas, but the most important thing that you can do this Christmas is to pay greater and closer attention to the message of Christmas. Many good things that we can pursue this Christmas, but the most important thing we can do is turn our eyes to the first Christmas story, to aim for a, a better and a bigger view of the gospel story. So this morning we're going to break this text into three separate parts, and we're going to see how these, these parts, this, this chapter, declares that the message of the first Christmas is greater than anything else the world can offer us. So our text begins by telling us this in, in verses 1 through 4, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. The first declaration of this passage is this, Jesus offers a better salvation. Jesus offers a better salvation, better than any other competing claim in the world. The salvation that Jesus offers us is better than therapeutic shopping on, Good Friday, or on Black Friday. It's better than the nostalgic uh, Christmases of long, long ago. It's better than the charge to be kind to one another. It is even better, better than gathering together with your family. Jesus offers us a better salvation. Verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Our passage begins with a warning. Our attention and focus at Christmas isn't just a matter of choosing the best thing. It's not as though we are at a buffet with, with countless good options and to each their own. No, no, no. This passage tells us that at Christmas— if we choose to focus on the wrong thing, then we need to beware because we will begin to drift away from the most important thing in our lives. What will we drift from? Well, the text tells us, it says, what we have heard, 
And that, what we have heard, is the gospel. If you aren't opting to pay closer attention to the gospel, then according to the author of Hebrews, here in Hebrews chapter 2, you will drift from it. Your life is never neutral. It is going one direction or another. It is like a boat on a river, and the message of the gospel is taking a trajectory that will lead you upstream against the current of our culture. But if you are not intentional in pursuing that trajectory, then you will drift. And just like a river that ends with a waterfall with deadly rocks at the bottom, a half-hearted commitment to the gospel, a half-hearted commitment to centering your life on Jesus will result in ruin. This warning is very clear from the next two verses. Verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution— How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's going on here? These verses are a little confusing to us, especially as we're just jumping in for a couple weeks here in Advent. Well, Jewish tradition in the first century believed that the Old Testament, specifically the law that we see in uh, in Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, that this was actually handed down from God to angels, and then the angels were the ones who gave it to Moses. We actually see this belief in Stephen's words in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7, Stephen is giving this speech to a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem, and he's talking about their past, their history. It says this, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So in Hebrews chapter 2, when it's talking about this message declared by angels in verse 2, that's referring to the law. And this is just a very standard argument from the lesser to the greater. Hebrews chapter 2 is saying this, that remember that law, remember what you you have that that was handed down to you by angels. Well, the, the law said that there would be punishment if you didn't obey, if you weren't obedient to it. Judgment would come upon those who who ignored the law. And, and if we are familiar with our own history, Israel, remember that, that this, is, this is what happened. Our people ignored the law. They ignored this obedience to God, and they were judged. They faced judgment. They were kicked out of the land. And God's word proved to be reliable. It proved to be trustworthy. It proved to be accurate. And if that's what happens with the law, this lesser thing, then how much more terrifying is the judgment that awaits those who drift from the gospel? You see, Jesus is offering you a better salvation than anything that the world can offer, anything that you can fathom, but because it is so precious, because it is so beautiful, because it is so glorious, it is absolutely unthinkable for us to not be enthralled with it. In fact, it is not overstating the case to say that it is deadly for us to voluntarily ignore or or embrace the gospel just half-heartedly or be so caught up by other distractions that we can't pay closer attention to it as we see here in verse 1. Jesus offers us a better salvation And the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 give us the why. Why should I believe that? 
Why should I believe that what Jesus offers is better than anything else? Because if you've seen my Christmas list, it has some pretty great stuff on it. Why? Verse 3 again. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Hebrews 1 begins by telling us how God communicates with humanity. Pastor Kurt led us through that here in Spirit Lake last week. Ages past, he spoke through the prophets, but this new season, the pinnacle of his message to humanity is found in the gospel. It's found in his son. And this son rules and reigns over all of creation because of his greatness and because of his glory. And after those first four verses in Hebrews 1, we see this transition. And it says that you know how beautiful and glorious and powerful angels are? Well, they're nothing compared to Jesus. Hebrews 1, 5 through 14 gives us evidence of Jesus' superiority to the angels. Now take a look at our passage. Verse 2, it tells us that the law is this message that is declared by angels, but in verse 3, how is the gospel described? It's not the message declared by angels, it's the message at first declared by the Lord. And if Jesus is greater than angels, Hebrews 1, then the message that Jesus brings, the salvation that Jesus brings, is far superior to the message of salvation that they bring. Verse 3, verse 4 gives us three witnesses to the greatness of this salvation. First, who they heard it from. Who these people heard it from. First, it was declared by Jesus. It was declared by the Son of God himself. And then it was declared to the church by those who heard it directly from Jesus. There's this direct chain linking them to Jesus. Second, the greatness of this salvation is evident because of God's power on display in signs and miracles and wonders in the early church. And if you've read the book of Acts lately, that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. It's this declaration of the superiority of the message of the gospel. And finally, if that wasn't enough, we see that God himself testifies to the greatness of this salvation in Jesus by giving spiritual gifts to his church. The giving of gifts are for the sake of building up the church, building up one another, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And that is meant to be a testament to the greatness of the salvation that is found in Jesus. Jesus offers a better salvation. Of course, you might be wondering, well, well, we, we don't really see that today, do we? But whether we realize it or not, the same is exactly true today. Yes, the apostles, apostles like Peter, died thousands of years ago. But while the apostle Peter may not be a regular guest preacher here at our church, have you ever considered how incredible it is that we have two books written by him? Right now, our church is going through the Gospel of Mark, and one of the things that we've talked about over and over and over again is that Mark is actually writing down Peter's memories of Jesus. It is an eyewitness account from Peter of everything that he has seen, everything that he has experienced with Jesus, and he's communicating it to Mark for the church in a very real way. 
Every single book in the New Testament has some sort of association with the apostles, eyewitnesses who heard the gospel from Jesus. And now, because we have the Bible, we also are hearing it from those who heard it from Jesus first. That is the magnificent, beautiful truth about your Bible. We can also see that God bears witness to the greatness of this salvation through the gifts that he gives to his church through his spirit. The church is built up. It's edified through spiritual gifts. It doesn't grow numerically. It doesn't grow spiritually through a dynamic personality. It grows through the work of the spirit and people like you and people like me. You want to marvel at this great salvation? Then look at the people around you. And consider that people use as imperfect vessels like you and me to further his kingdom. But as we are going to see in the rest of this passage, we know that Jesus offers a better salvation because of the depths that he went to in the incarnation. This notion that God would become man in order to save rebellious humanity, it declares the greatness of this salvation that more than anything else that, that can try to compete with it, Jesus offers to us a better salvation than anything you could come up with as an alternative. So heed the warning of this passage. Pay closer attention to the gospel, lest you drift from it. Second truth from this passage, second way that it declares that the message of the first Christmas is better than anything else in the world is this. Jesus is a better Adam. Jesus is a better Adam Adam, as we all may know, is the first human. He was created by God to rule over God's creation. But instead of ruling over God's creation alongside God, he instead decided he was going to rebel against God's rule. And yet, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Jesus is a better Adam. Pick up in verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet." See, verse 5 reminds us of Jesus' authority. Unlike the angels, Jesus is ruling and reigning, and he still will be ruling and reigning until the end of time and beyond that in the world to come. You see, Adam chose disobedience and forfeited his authority in God's kingdom in order to pursue his own exaltation. And yet, the second Adam, Jesus is exalted to this place of authority in God's kingdom forever because of his obedience. Hebrews 2 quotes the book of Psalms, Psalm 8, as evidence of this. Psalm 8, powerful psalm, if you aren't familiar with it, it really should lead us to humility. And the vastness and the beauty and the magnificence of God's cosmos and everything that God has created, it is absolutely shocking that God would choose to set his affection on us, on humanity. But as much as Psalm 8 leads us to humility, 
Hebrews reminds us that psalm isn't primarily about us. It's primarily about Jesus. Consider again verse 7. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. What's in view here? It's the Christmas story, isn't it? When it says that Jesus is made for a little while lower than the angels, it doesn't mean that Jesus is a created being. Far from it, it declares that Jesus voluntarily takes on flesh. He takes on a role that is lower than the glory of the angels for a little while. Not forever, but for a little while. This is the story of Christmas summed up by the Apostle John, John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is a better Adam because where Adam was a failure, Jesus was victorious. Jesus is a better Adam because where Adam brought slavery to sin, Jesus brings us freedom. Jesus is a better Adam because where Adam brought death, Jesus brings us life. And as this better Adam, he rules and reigns over all of his creation. Pick up latter half of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In our final section, we will see one of the Bible's clearest descriptions of why Christmas happened, why God took on flesh. But here we catch a glimpse of it. Why did Jesus take on flesh? Well, it's so that by his death, he might taste death for everyone. Because of the first Adam, death was inescapable. But because of the second Adam, who tasted death, we can find life. Perhaps surprisingly, the message of Christmas is a message of suffering. Yes, Angelic choirs sang Jesus' praise at his birth, but from the very beginning, Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth would lead to death. Yes, there will be glory, there will be honor, there will be resurrection, but there would be very real suffering and pain and humiliation that would take place first. And all of this suffering was necessary because of the rebellion of the first Adam, because of our rebellion against God. But because Jesus is the better Adam, we can have hope in the message of Christmas. Passage ends with one final declaration of, of the superiority of the gospel over anything else that we might run to. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better high priest. Priest, that, that language is very religious, and, and we might not think that that's all that relevant today, this idea of, of being a priest. But, but what a priest promises you 
is actually still pretty relevant. It's what we all seek after in one way or another. Priests promise you peace. They promise you rest. They promise you assurance in a hectic and hard life. And Jesus does all of that, but he does it better. Jesus is a better high priest in a way that no one or nothing else will. Jesus can give you peace. He can give you assurance. He can give you rest in the message of the gospel. This final section, Hebrews 2, 10 through 18, focuses on this reality that Jesus is a better high priest in two halves. The first emphasizes this. Jesus is a better high priest because he freely chose to become one of us. He freely chose to become one of us. Jesus voluntarily chose to come to earth, and he he voluntarily chose to humble himself and take on flesh, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given to me. Now these verses, I don't know about you, uh, but these verses to me are, are a little difficult to follow. We have three Old Testament passages or quotes here without context, without commentary. So, so they're, they're kind of hard for us to, to get a hold on. But remember, we already have this controlling idea. This is telling us that Jesus is a better high priest because he chose to become one of us. Let's see how these four verses bear that out. Verse 10 tells us that Jesus, the founder of their salvation, has come to earth in order to do What? Well, according to verse 10, it's to win his brothers and sisters. God the Father, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, has brought many sons and daughters to glory, all because of the sacrifice of his son. All because of the sacrifice of Jesus. God's family has grown. He has more children now than ever before. Those who were once alienated from him are now brought near, becoming his sons and daughters, all because of Jesus. How is this possible? Well, verse 10, again, tells us the answer. When it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering, that's not saying that Jesus uh, uh, eventually had such a hard life that eventually he reached this exalted state of mind where we had this complete victory over sin. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Jesus, the sinless one, proves himself perfect, proves himself sinless through complete obedience. His entire life, even in his suffering. To borrow language from our previous section, in Jesus' life, we see perfect obedience from the perfect Adam. Perfect obedience from the perfect human being. Where Adam failed, where you failed, where I failed, Jesus did not. Jesus freely became human because it was the only way to prove himself worthy of taking our place in death that we might taste life. Verse 10 focuses on the difference between us and Jesus, that, well, he was perfect and and we are far from that. But verses 11 through 13 focus on what we have in common with him, a common humanity. This is what 
is in view when this text tells us that we have the same source. And this is the ultimate purpose of these Old Testament quotations here in verses 12 and 13. Notice there are a couple references to family language here. He calls us brothers, and then he talks about congregation, and then he later says, my children, in these quotations. The first of these three quotations is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22, Jesus quotes from the cross. We're familiar with the beginning of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm of suffering, but it also reminds us in the context of the entire psalm that suffering does not have the final word. In the case of Jesus, there is victory, even in the midst of suffering. But not just victory, there's victory for a purpose. It is for his brothers. Jesus' association with you is completely voluntarily. The weight of his suffering is incomprehensible. But what is his end goal? To save brothers and sisters. Christmas reminds us that he voluntarily associated with us by becoming human, but not only that, he also voluntarily associates with those who put in trust, their trust in him by calling them family. The second, third quotation here from Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8 is found in the midst of a section of Isaiah that's asking one chief question. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust with your life? Are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust earthly powers, political powers, the nations of that day? And in Isaiah's day, so many people said, hey, you know what? I want to trust God, but he's just not working for me. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to trust all of these political and earthly powers. And only a handful of people had the resolve to say, I will trust in the Lord of heaven and earth. What does that have to do with Hebrews 2? Well, the, the first quote, I will put my trust in him, shows us Jesus's resolve. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardship, Jesus says, I am going to put my trust in the Lord. I'm not putting my trust anywhere else. No nation, no power, no false hope. It is solely in God alone. You might run to competing claims this Christmas, but Jesus will not. The second is a word of assurance for us. Behold, I and the children God has given me. In Isaiah 8, this word children is actually a reference to Isaiah's disciples, those who he is teaching. Same is true as well here in Hebrews 2. Even if you fail to keep a perfect trust in God, even if you run to competing claims this Christmas, Jesus' obedience will become yours if you are his disciple. That is the message of the gospel. Why is Jesus a better high priest for us? It's because at Christmas, we remember that he voluntarily chose to become one of us in order to save us. 14 through 18, build off that because Jesus has freely chosen to associate with us and is not ashamed to call us brothers, verse 11, because he was proven perfect in his obedience, even in suffering, verse 10. Jesus is a better high priest. And what does that better high priest offer to us? Consider four things as we see at the end of this passage. Four reasons why Jesus came to earth at Christmas. The first is this. Jesus came to earth to destroy the devil. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is 
the devil. In becoming human, like you and me, and by becoming perfectly obedient to his Father, unlike you and me, and offering himself up in our place, Jesus destroys the power of the devil. The great accuser can no longer have any power over you if you belong to Jesus. If Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Second, Jesus came to earth to free us from the fear of death, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Elsewhere in the New Testament, when it talks about slavery, this concept is is used to describe the helpless state we find ourselves in, trapped in sin. But that's not how Hebrews uses it here. Hebrews is describing this enemy that all of us have faced from time immemorial, humanity has faced one enemy that we cannot defeat, death. Death is inescapable. If this life is all that there is, that is just too much for us to bear. And countless people have been paralyzed, wasting their lives because of this fear of death, trying to escape it. And Jesus at Christmas comes to free us from that fear of death by promising us life, life eternal. Third, Jesus came to make a sacrifice for sins, verses 16 and 17. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You want to know one of the most unfathomable truths of Christmas? If you consider the story of redemption, the story of the Bible, humanity rebels against God, but we aren't the only ones who rebel against God. The Bible also tells us that angelic hosts rebelled against God as well. They rebelled against his reign But Jesus did not become an angel in order to redeem them. He instead chose to become a human, to be made like his brothers in every respect, to serve as our high priest. Where salvation is no, salvation is not possible for the angels, salvation is possible for us because Jesus has become like us. And finally, Jesus came to earth to help us in temptation. Verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why is it that Christmas is so incredible, so glorious, so wonderful? It's because every time that you struggle with the temptation to sin, every time you experience this war inside of you between what you know God wants you to do and what you actually really want to do, every time you find competing passions in your heart to to do good or, or to do wrong, Jesus can relate. Because of Christmas, because he became human, he knows exactly what you are going through. He knows what it is like to be tempted to covet something that is not his. He knows what it is like to be tempted to lie in order to cover up an uncomfortable situation. He knows what it's like to be unjustly wronged and want to lash out. Whatever you face, Jesus knows what it is like because he became like you. 
And yet through it all, he remained perfect. And here's the most unbelievable part. Jesus doesn't use his victory over temptation to belittle you or condemn you. He doesn't say, come on, I did it. You can do it too. He's the perfect older brother. Jesus is our brother. He's our older brother. And he helps his younger siblings in times of need. This is why Hebrews later says these beautiful words, Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us on our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The most important thing you can do this Christmas is pay greater and closer attention to the message of Christmas. It's about a baby boy in a manger, yes, but it is much deeper than that. It is a story of the Son of God coming to earth to win a family for his Father. It's about God freeing us from our slavery to fear. It is about God forever closing the mouth of the accuser. It is the death of a dear older brother who helps us in our weaknesses to live lives that bring a smile to the face of his heavenly Father. The most important thing you can do this Christmas is pay greater and closer attention to the message of Christmas. Don't drift away. Don't let competing claims conquer your heart. Let's aim for a greater Christmas this year. Let's turn our eyes to the gospel of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, it is such a great privilege to hear your word and to see it on display and the faithfulness of your son. And God, we rejoice that he freely chose to become like us, that we might become your sons and daughters. And so this Christmas, we ask that you would help each and every one of us to turn our hearts and our affections to you, to not be caught up in the distractions of this world, but instead to turn to you. We do this through the help and the strength that is given to us through your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.